India is the largest groundwater consumer in the world, which is like higher than the even the second and third, which is US and China combined. We consume 250 billion cubic meter per year. Welcome to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Growing Impact explores cutting-edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through an innovative seed grant program that is facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. On this episode of Growing Impact, I speak with a team of researchers who are examining the consequences of a solar irrigation pump policy in India. Their seed grant project is titled Analyzing the Adoption of Solar Irrigation Pumps in India Within the Food Energy Water Nexus, Implications for Carbon, Groundwater Depletion, and Agricultural Productivity. Through this project, the team is analyzing the policy to determine how it may impact groundwater consumption, energy usage, and food production in a country with a rapidly growing population and some of the fastest depleting groundwater reserves in the world. Today on Growing Impact, I have a team of researchers who are working on a project involving the food energy water nexus and the involvement of solar energy in that process. I'll let the team introduce themselves. My name is Danny Brent. I'm an assistant professor and the India is the largest groundwater consumer in the world. We consume 250 billion cubic meters per year. That's like higher than 20% of uh, combined uh, groundwater consumption of U.S. and China. Resources in the Department of Ecosystem Management in the College of Agricultural Sciences. And my work related to this project is on water energy, food security and thinking about the integration of these sectors. So we call it water energy food nexus. And I'm working primarily in Africa on this, but there are a lot of lessons we can learn from India. Hi, my name is Praharsh Patel and I am a PhD student in energy, environmental and food economics program, a part of College of Agriculture Sciences. And I work on environmental economics with special interest in intended and unintended consequences of environmental policies. I'd like to welcome the team to Growing Impact. Thanks for having us. And likewise, good to be on with you. Yeah, Kevin, it's happy to be here. What is the background of this project? So Praharsh is from uh, Gujarat, and they have some um, really severe groundwater depletion um, issues there. And we were looking at this policy that was focusing on providing solar irrigation um, to farmers and we're interested in what the potential implications would be for groundwater. So, you know, the solar panels can reduce carbon, provide, you know, more stable um, electricity for irrigation. So there's a lot of benefits, but we were also concerned about perhaps some of the unintended consequences in terms of groundwater depletion and trying to figure out again, what some of the costs and benefits, particularly some of these unintended um, uh, consequences of the policy, I think really got us uh, interested in this idea in the first place. So what inspired you to look at irrigation needs in India? I would say like I belong to a farming community in India and it's more of a dream with like my personal interest in the subject. So I have first-hand experience how the irrigation is so important for the farming community, especially in the arid and semi-arid parts where I belong, that's Gujarat. 
and its uh, groundwater spatial is very much important for socio-economic development of entire communities and sustainability of not just the food systems but also the livelihood of people. However, since like groundwater is very much dependent on a stable resource, uh, there has been no over-exploitation of groundwater in last few years, very much propelled by the free energy access to the farmers. And you might be surprised, but India is the largest groundwater consumer in the world, which is like higher than the, even the second and third, which is US and China combined. We consume 250 billion cubic meters per year. That's like higher than 20% of uh, combined uh, groundwater consumption of US and China. And still we are just around the 30% of total groundwater uh, irrigation access to the farmers. And we need to further expand the irrigation expansion, which will put uh, energy access uh, in question and also like a big question on groundwater sustainability. So that's very much interesting from my side to look at the entire perspective of like food security through energy and water access. You spoke a little bit about India, Praharsh. Could you talk about what factors influenced your decision to use India as a location? Firstly, uh, the groundwater situation was very much a driving factor here. Uh, the groundwater depletion where I was working before I joined my PhD, the severity is such that we are having a depletion of almost like uh, 10 to 15 feet every year. That's like world's largest groundwater depletion happening ever. And again, like the, there is also a need for sustaining the agriculture production. And so there is a, no policy that we can enforce on people to just to stop the groundwater usage. And that's where this solar irrigation was an interesting idea, because uh, given that farmers are provided with solar panels that they can connect to grid and they can actually sell the surplus energy they are producing. And now this kind of creates the opportunity cost for the farmers to not inefficiently use the energy that are getting for free. And that's where like, uh, I would say like was the most exciting factor, which, uh, which is why we kind of focused on especially the Gujarat and the Indian scenario of uh, solar irrigation promotion. From a greenhouse gas lens, why are solar irrigation pumps an important step forward for India? Well, obviously, um, everyone wants to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. So that's the, the simple answer. And India is one of those countries that are in a predicament. Although they have good coal supplies, you know, they also they depend on for um, imports for other types of fossil fuels. So the bottom line is, you know, if they can be more independent from the, the fractious global economy right now with with fossil fuel activities like the war in Ukraine affecting supplies. Um, uh, solar panels provide independent energy sources. So, so that's another reason. And then obviously um, uh, we, we have to think about the benefits to the other benefits, not just the greenhouse gases, like the agricultural production, the energy savings, and 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 hopefully on on more efficient water use. So in the abstract, it talks about that there's a, a there are hindrances to the adoption of solar irrigation pumps. Could you talk a little bit about what's hindering the adoption of solar irrigation pumps? You find that there are different types of issues. The first and foremost is the finances. Solar system is still a very much expensive affair for the farmers who are like still very much on the minimal uh, incomes. 
Secondly, although they are providing a huge subsidy, so this scheme which we are talking about, the Surya Sakti Kisan Yojana, which was a state government scheme, they were providing almost 95% finances through direct or indirect means. Still, those managing the rest 5% was also difficult for a few farmers. Second comes into the picture is like a local know-how of the technology. The solar is being a very sophisticated technology and there are so many components, especially when it goes to the grid connection. We need to manage all the electrical systems uh, to the like fine tuning to the microgrids. And this was a huge challenge in adoption. Third was more of a social uh, aspect, which was like for adoption of grid level uh, solar, there has to be a almost 70% consensus among the same feeder farmers, the farmer in the same locality to adopt the system. And most of the farmers, as we have seen in most of the technological adoption, people would like to wait and watch. They would like to wait and see like how it works for others before they themselves invest and adopt the things. So there was also a component where farmers were skeptical about the potential benefits, potential outcome of the new technology for them. And they were kind of uh, not very much excited to adopt in the first place. In certain places that some of the components, I think in particular, the copper wiring were being stolen uh-huh. um, and or other parts were breaking down and they didn't have you know technical workers to be able to go and fix them. So you know, this, and this really varied from region to region. So in some places, they're generating very little electricity from these panels because there was some breakdown either, you know, um, there was theft and the components were hard to replace or something was breaking and they didn't have anyone to fix it. Um, And in other places, it was running a lot smoother. So, you know, we're still in the process of going and going to analyze the electricity data so to see how much um, electricity these panels are actually producing. And I think that we're probably going to find, you know, that there is very, there's really wide differences from region to region. And so it just gets to this idea that you may have a really nice policy. It sounds good. But when you go to implement it, that implementation and sort of the, the people on the ground who are uh, actually running it, which may vary from place to place, really matters. Even when solar irrigation pumps are being used in India and it becomes a widespread, what are concerns about groundwater management? The way that you need to answer this question is to think about what the solar irrigation pumps are replacing. So the first category, and again, this is the primary category of this policy, but not necessarily other solar irrigation pump policy, um, is that it's just replacing um, an existing uh, grid-connected pump that's powered by electricity. And so the difference here, I think there's two big changes. Um, The first is that you typically get um, water access during the day and for a longer period of time. So most of these farmers got water for eight hours a day uh, or eight hours during the day and often it would be at night. Um, And when you adopted the solar irrigation pump, I think it was expanded to 12 hours. And again, it was during the day when the solar pump was producing energy. Uh, The second factor for if you're replacing a grid-connected pump is that now there's an opportunity cost for using the water. And this does vary from different farmers on grid connections. 
So some farmers just pay a flat fee. So there's no marginal cost for um, irrigation pumping, using the electricity to, to um, pump groundwater. So it doesn't matter if you pump a lot or a little, you pay the same electricity charge. Now with a solar irrigation pump, um, whatever you don't use um, for irrigation, you can send back to the grid and get paid for it. So you this adds an incentive for conservation. Um, so that's sort of the what's going on on the um, grid connected farmers if you're replacing a, a grid connected pump. Then you also have uh, farmers who are not connected to the grid and a solar irrigation pump could replace either you don't have any um, groundwater access or a diesel pump, which is really expensive to use. And in this case, it probably makes pumping groundwater cheaper. So in some areas, if we're replacing, you know, grid connected uh, pumps that for farmers that are paying a, uh, paying a, fat, a flat fee, the soil irrigation pumps may increase the incentive to conserve groundwater. If you're replacing an expensive pump or adding a pump to a place where there wasn't a pump before, solar irrigation pumps that again have a zero marginal cost or you know a zero incremental cost for pumping groundwater may really increase the demand for groundwater in those areas and then exacerbate any groundwater depletion. So I think it's going to be really important to harmonize groundwater policy with solar irrigation policy. And again, this is one of, um, from our perspective, the most interesting elements of this topic in general is these trade-offs between, you know, energy use, agricultural production, and groundwater conservation. Yeah, I'll just add, it's not just the um, the, the trade-offs on whether they over-consume water, but it's also on how they, as Danny just mentioned, decide on what whether or not to grow more crops to expand their land or to to change their harvesting or cropping practices uh, with respect to their water use that that's the whole reason for thinking of integrating this water energy food nexus approach is is really the policy governance the silos of these three sectors they're not talking to each other and this is an excellent case in point where the the energy policy on solar is not really thinking about the impacts on groundwater uh, and the, the agricultural impacts, food production, and so on. So yeah, that's why it's complex. Who stands to benefit from SIPs? If I answer that very directly, I would say in current context, if this grid connection is provided in the way that it is done for the Gujarat, the well of farmers who have a means to adopt or even like adopt larger scale solar plants, they will be reaping off all the benefits out of it. So there are, I have seen a few farmers who will like leave the agriculture side, we will just produce solar energy and make money that is more than double the agriculture production we are making as of now. Whereas the whole point of this policy was like, promote the solar irrigation so that the, the not so well of farmers, the middle or lower income farmers can also reap some benefit and building climate resilience in case like they can't produce agriculture in uh, due, due to drought or some climate disaster kind of thing. They have at least some income to fall back on. 
but it doesn't seem that that's the main outcome as of now i am i am not pessimistic that it's not going to happen but definitely if it's adopted more by the small farmers it will definitely create some more benefit to the all types of farmers if it's implemented in the way it has it should be interesting yeah so i think the i remember Paharsh had some um forget the exact phrase he used but he said that you know they're convert they're transitioning from being you know agricultural producers to being like small scale solar plants um and i don't think that that was the goal like that may be a goal in general of trying to have distributed solar on agricultural land but the goal for, i think for this policy in general is to basically replace the electricity needs for pumping groundwater and you know you you did see scenarios where they're you know four or five times uh, uh, as much capacity as their um, previous groundwater use would uh, demand, and so it's they would definitely benefit. They're not necessarily benefiting, and there are environmental benefits to that. They're not necessarily benefiting the way that the policy was intended. Right. The one other element that I would be interested in or think about for a larger scale policy is really focusing on, on these off-grid farmers. Uh, so again, they may have more severe um, groundwater implications if you're really adding irrigation capacity. But if they're not connected to the grid, uh, getting access to solar irrigation may be a, a better step than waiting for the electricity grid to come to your area. And again, you can think of it sort of as like a leapfrog technology. And so as opposed to waiting for the traditional, you know, technology of centralized power plant and transmission lines to, you know, reach remote places, you can get, you know, decentralized uh, solar irrigation. And again, I think the the big question is trying to incorporate groundwater management into that. But otherwise, from a, a both food and energy perspective, I think that there are um, really attractive features of sort of, sort of skipping the the grid connection and going straight to decentralized solar. But another issue is are these people who are just absorbing credits, so to speak, to feed back to the grid, they also using land for these panels, right? And so that's another issue is the trade-offs with the panels and the land use. You know, this this other technology called agrophotovoltaics, mm -hmm. where you actually can and I I think State College, I saw a photo the other day of some sheep under solar panels. Um, and that's the idea where you can grow shade tolerant crops and pastures under these panels. So you you get your um, energy food and you can use the panels for water on the same piece of land. How will this project help make an impact in India? The national policy, I think, is still under development, I don't think it's been um, deployed yet, but I think it'll be really interesting to see the form that it takes. Again, is it really an energy policy that's trying to just use agricultural land for to build solar panels and gradually displace fossil fuels? Is it an agricultural plan to really increase access to irrigation um, and, um, you know, particularly to places that may not have uh, uh electrical uh, or grid connected uh pumps um or again is it more of like a you know um social welfare plan where providing you know a constant stream of income to um 
farmers that have you know are vulnerable to all sorts of different shocks um so it's in some sense like a um a form of agricultural uh or farm insurance that even when the crops aren't doing well you still have a different uh revenue stream from the solar panels and again that's only going to be the case if it is connected to the grid and you can sell the electricity back so um you know there's a lot of different ways where it could impact india and um I definitely am interested to see how how it develops and, and how it's used in other places as well. And what are the broad implications of solar irrigation for South Asia and Africa? This is a bigger question about you know meeting climate goals and and dealing with with food security. And these countries in Africa and South Asia um, have have you know huge populations and I, th I think that is probably the, the basic um thing that we need to be thinking about is population growth india is going to be the, the largest population country in the world is overtaking um, china by mid-century and nigeria for example in africa is going to be the second largest so so you know how are we going to feed these people um and so the demographics and the population issues uh, are important and solar irrigation to provide this food at least, and perhaps jobs and other um, offshoots of technologies and, and industry and manufacturing from solar in general, not just irrigation, and also reducing carbon emissions at the same time from dependency on fossil fuel, which is a global issue right now on supplies. I think, um, shows that you know this this project as we also working on it in Africa um with solar irrigation can can be a, a small part of that this bigger puzzle on dealing with population pressures and food security issues mm. but, but yeah and we, I didn't even mention the water scarce issues in if you look at global maps I mean the those these, these regions are the most water scarce areas um it, you know, in terms of availability and access and, and also the, the regions that have the least irrigated agriculture. Thank you for spending time on Growing Impact and discussing your research with me. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having me. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. I've been your host, Kevin Sliman. To learn more about IEE and to hear previous episodes of Growing Impact, please visit iee.psu.edu. This has been Season 3, Episode 1. Thank you for listening.